My name is JT Van Zant. I'm a fly fishing guide on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Being on the water has always been the secret to unlocking my soul. I just feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in this life. And that feeling inspires deep thought and conversations with my clients, who are all of varied backgrounds. I truly enjoy sharing perspective on the human experience with folks I take fishing. Drifting, a Yeti Presents podcast, was created with the goal of capturing those candid conversations with people who inspire me and sharing them with an audience that has the same sort of restlessness and curiosity that I do. I have found that the best way to provide wisdom and hope for future generations is to learn from the folks that have blazed the trail before us and have made tough decisions in the pursuit of living an extraordinary life. I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening to Drifting. Kimmy Werner is a free diver and spear fisherman who can descend to 150 feet and hold her breath for nearly five minutes. She's a trained chef, a traveling speaker, and a teacher who is fighting for sustainable fishing practices and the future health of our oceans. In our conversation, Kimmy recalls freediving with her father as a child as he spearfished for food. She talks about how she sold art on the streets of Oahu just to pay her rent, and how the memory of swimming with her father as a child called her back to the ocean and set her life path in motion. Since that day, she's went on to win a national spearfishing championship, she has ridden a great white shark, and has traveled the world's oceans creating awareness and promoting sustainability. She is the perfect example of how someone who was once lost became found. Her great accomplishments are simply the result of following her passion. Hi, Kimmy. Hey, JT. So nice to be back at the Werner House here in Maui. Had the pleasure of uh, spending the night one time when you weren't here, my wife and I, Brittany, <sighs> and uh, feel like one of the family. Is that safe to say, June? Am I an honorary family member? <laughs> You make me feel like that, and I really appreciate it. Oh, all Kimmy's friends are our family. You know, uh, I don't know. I've never told you the story. When I first met Kimmy, hmm. we were sitting around at a at a backyard little fire pit at my friend Scott Ballou's house, and there was like a bottle of mezcal being passed around. I remember Jeff Johnson was there, and the Malloys were there, and Kimmy was sitting right next to me. And at some point, I... I asked her, like, who did you come with? Like, right? You remember mm-hmm. that, Kimmy? So I, you like, know, I didn't realize that was you. I, I like when now that you tell me this story, I remember this, but I didn't realize that that was you that night. Until later, like until at the later, because I saw you for the first time as you when you were on stage singing with Ryan Bingham the next night. Oh, right. And then later we talked at the bar. And, and so for me, meeting at the bar was the first time, but now I realize you're, you're the mezcal guy at the fire pit. <laughs> I'm both those guys. Yes. <laughs> I was, uh, I, I, I literally said like, who did you come with? Cause I didn't know Kimmy at all. And not that because she's a woman, I didn't right. think she was some extraordinary talent, but, uh, later on someone was like, dude, do you know who that is? And I was like, no. And, uh. They said, that's Kimmy Werner. And they showed me some information online and a video of riding a great white shark. Mm. And uh, I was completely transfixed by you. And I kind of live vicariously through your your travels and your experiences, especially the underwater experiences, mm. because I can't do that 
And it's so fascinating. It's like you have a parallel life that exists beneath the surface of the ocean. That's scary. <sighs> Indeed. So where did you develop that courage? Well, first I'll tell my favorite story that sort of kicks it off, uh, which I think is just so beautiful um, as a parent, where your dad would take you along and you'd be swimming on the surface and he would be down at like 50 feet and he would look up and wave at you and you would wave back. And he said, the next thing I knew, I was swimming around at 50 feet, but this time I'd wave down to her at 100 feet mm-hmm. and she would wave back up to me. You know, it's just so awesome. You love to see your kids pass you up and, and get better at something that you brought them into. So how pivotal, how pivotal was your relationship with your parents in terms of who you are today? Um, it is like to say it was instrumental to the person I am today would be the biggest understatement ever. I mean, we grew up in a house pretty much the opposite of this house that my parents are now living in now. They've upgraded. My dad built this beautiful house up country, but I was, I've never lived here. I, I was raised in this mom's laughing already with embarrassment but I will never be embarrassed of our house I lived in the boonies um in this little shack like rotten wood mildew everywhere centipedes coming out of the drain rats falling on my head at times like a shack that would change colors depending on what mosses were growing during different seasons um but we we didn't really have any neighbors or any other humans to interact with. And so basically all I knew was nature and my family. Um, And so everything about those very early years, you know, it was, it was given to me from, from my mom and my dad. Um, And I think that's where I really developed my core values. And so it was, it was such a huge influence because we were poor. We had nothing. And um, and we spent so much time because of that together in nature, foraging for our food. And my favorite way to do that was always tagging along with my dad when he would go spearfishing and free diving. And he, he still jokes to this day that, you know, the only reason why he started taking me out when I was about four years old is because he didn't have the money to hire a babysitter when mom was working and he still had to put food on the table. So I got to come with him. But regardless of the reason, um, the minute I got exposed to that world, it just, um, I mean, it really is like living a double life. I felt like going to another planet and it was a planet where I could fly. You know, I could... I could try and swim down and look at the fish, but I could always go back up and just fly to the surface. And um, my my main job was just to keep up, to keep up with my dad. And he would swim so fast and I couldn't swim so fast. And, you know, and he would just leave me <laughs> if I couldn't keep up. And so I remember as long as I could see the bubbles left by his fins, I knew I was going in the right direction. But um but just watching him go down to those depths and return with my favorite dinners in hand, you know, these beautiful fish or lobster or octopus. Like I was just his number one cheerleader clapping for him and waving at him, but, um, but always returning to land and, and then bringing this catch to my mom. I think that's where maybe even the more important part of that education kicked in because it was my mom 
that would teach me how to clean these fish. And she, you know, scold me if I wasted any part of it when we, when she taught me how to cut a fish. And it was always her that would really drill into us everything about how to respect the ocean, you know, how never to take more than what you need, how never to waste a single morsel of it and to always be thankful for what we got. So, I mean, it really was those very early years of, of being poor that I feel like were the richest years of my life. Things changed shortly after that. By the time I was turning seven, both of them had some pretty good career moves and mom went to college when I went to kindergarten. She went to college, she must've been 41, 41 when you went to college for the first time, you know, um, she didn't come from a privileged upbringing. And so when she went to school, she took it so seriously that she graduated at the top of her class and got a really good job at um, the emergency room as a nurse. And, um, and my dad's company took off at the same time. And so our lives changed dramatically. And we went from being super poor to being really civilized. Hey, Dad. Hey, Chris. Dad just came home. Um, I put some venison and brats in your freezer out in the garage. Hey, don't leave without getting your Nevada. Okay. <laughs> Grab a drink and come join us. I will. <laughs> so awesome. Nice inside out shirt. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my goodness, Dad. Like, one. It's Tuesday, right? It's opposite day. <laughs> and it's so, also Maui, no sweat. Yeah. <laughs> I guess my dad just Chris left. has got his, his, his work shirt inside out. So, I mean, a lot of things have changed and a lot of things haven't changed. But uh, Perfect. But yeah, so I, I, I guess in short, um, yeah, those early years spent with my family, I think that was the most time we ever got to spend together was back then. And, um, and it made me who I was. It took a long life or, you know, a long full circle for me to kind of come back to it. it. I didn't honestly start sparing fish until I was 24 years old. The minute we became a civilized family, everything changed. But When was he waving down to you at 100 feet? So that was when I became, when I was in my twenties. So I, so basically I was just a little tag along runt and that was it. And then when our lives changed, you know, we just started getting our food from the grocery store and, um, mom and dad were working all the time and it was, you know, neat. Cause we, they got to, they always wanted to give us more than, than what they could before. And so we did get more, we got new school clothes, you know, we no longer had to shop at Salvation Army. We got bikes, we got stuff like that. But, but I was miserable when we first moved. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. I didn't like it. I, I was kicking and screaming to move back to the old shack. Was this always on Maui? Yep. Yep, always on Maui. And their job was when it rained, Haiku, it rained every night. She and Christy had to put all the washing pans where the rain leaked through the roof. Yeah, that, that's, that's totally true. We lived, we lived in this shack that had this, this tin roof that just was, had all types of, it had all types of leaks and holes in it. And my job at an early age was to take the same pots and pans that mom cooked dinner with and put them all around the house to catch the leaks of the roof. And I love that chore. Like I, I knew the right spot for every size pot and 
it was all that kind of stuff that I missed, you know, when, when things changed, but, um, what was your dad doing back then for work? He was still, he was trying to make a company. He was trying to make his plastering company, a construction company, but it was basically just him and a friend and a wheelbarrow. Like I remember watching, you know, seeing it like hand painted Warner plastering on the side of your truck when you started taking it really seriously. Um, but yeah, but before I knew it, he started getting jobs and then he started getting a crew and then the crew started growing and, um, and so then the, the fishing was fun. It was part recreation, but it was mainly sustenance. He was, he was hunting your food when you guys were spear fishing together. It was survival. Yeah. It was survival 100%, you know, and I think after when he started, when, when they started making more money, we'd still go do it for fun once in a while, mainly fishing with, um, you know, lines, hand lines, but that was recreation then. That was because I missed the taste of those fish. But when we were really young and poor, it was it was recreation for me, but it was survival for them. So every shot counted. Yeah, definitely <laughs> did. And they missed it. We upgraded our life and moved into the subdivision. And they missed the old style, the Mickey roof and everything. Because you guys had that closeness. Everyone was together all the time, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, we were there out of necessity, but when we got a better life and moved into the subdivision, they missed the old fashioned. More security, and but you're, you're having to work and be gone every day, and kids went into school. I mean, I, I feel full circle now. I'm happy that I got, I got both lives. <laughs> Clothes are cool, <laughs> you know, going, going, going to school, and you know, not. You know, I don't know. I, I miss the old life personally. I, I miss diving with dad. And when mom was home, what we would do for extra money. I mean, they both work. They both worked really hard, but it just, you know, times were tough. And what mom and I would do is we'd go pick all the lily koi's, the passion fruit and guava and um, and and we'd take it to the juice company and we'd sell it. And sometimes we'd come back with just like a couple of dollars. And they loved it. All yeah, that was our savings account. What'd you spend your $2 on? I don't remember. I don't know if it really did go to us, actually. But they felt like they were making a living. I mean, you know, they were picking up the guavas, lily coys, and all that. And when we took it to the cannery, and they sold it, and the money was theirs. I didn't take anything of it. It was all theirs. Yeah, so, well, I think that's the point, is it, it taught me early on the value of things because I think when you're given too much too soon, you don't necessarily know the value. But um, but seeing you know my dad have to go out and work that hard to bring back dinner and put it on the table, and you know go out every single day and work hard to try and start a company, and seeing my mom do the same thing, like I said, going to college for the first time at 41, you know and doing working all around the clock while bringing us with her um it just it not only taught me the value of hard work but um I don't know I think I think in a lot of ways it not only taught me the value of hard work but I think what it truly ingrained in me is that even though they didn't have much they were happy like they were, you know, I know that they always wanted to upgrade. They always wanted to to get more. And I think that was for us, for us kids. They wanted to give us more than what they had. But I watched them as a couple. 
and they were happy. And um, I thought all parents were like that. And when we did upgrade and move into um, a subdivision and then I got to hang out with friends and stuff, I realized that not all parents are happy. And, and families that had a lot more than we ever had didn't have the same love and appreciation, you know, for each other or their family. And every year when it was my birthday, um, like my dad would take us camping for our birthday. And, and it was just those magical times. So even now, like, as we sit in this nice house and I'm so proud of my mom and dad because I know that they earned this and they built this and they did it together. I think it makes me even more proud to know that when they had nothing, they were the same happy couple, like just loving each other. And so (laughs) (laughs) my mom just flipped my dad off just to be sarcastic, but that's how she shows affection. (laughs) I know you do. I know you both love each other very much. Kenny would always go, you know, like, okay, look, I got to go get dinner. Who wants to go? And Kenny would go, I want to go. And she would always go. Chrissy was a good water person, but Kimmy, she was younger and she just wanted to go. And I remember one time we, we jumped in, I think at Maliko and we swam down about a mile and I just kind of told her behind me and I'd go in a cave and I'd come out with something and she'd look and be clapping her hands. And where we're gonna come in, it was kind of the waves are breaking and it looked a little scary. It was scary. It wasn't. And uh, what I made the mistake is I had these lobsters. So I put them on this little kickboard that I would tow Kimmy around on. And then I put Kenny on and I grabbed it. Okay, we're going to surf this way. And I go, how is it just, well, it's kind of pokey. And I didn't. <laughs> the lobster tails are pushing into her. Yeah, my mom would basically, she would um, drive my dad and I like to the cliffs of the North Shore. And he would put me on his back sometimes, hike down these cliffs. And we would drift like all the way down the coast and it's come in at um, totally different bays where my mom would pick us up. But yeah, sometimes the surf would be up and and one time he got so concerned about the waves that he forgot about the lobsters and, and put me on top of them and put himself on top of me on the board. And I yeah, I got pretty scratched up. Even another time when you told me to go look in that cave for lobsters and oh, you and kind of, you sh- yeah, I went under there to look in the caves and then I stayed down looking at them so long that he thought that, he got worried about me that he just yanked me out and scratched me up all over the reef. <laughs> yeah. Do you think a lot of that led to some of the fearlessness that you have to have to do what you do nowadays? You know, I, I mean, I really don't consider myself fearless at all, but I think that it definitely gave me um, the comfort in the water because when, when my dad you know, first started kind of teaching me to swim, I would panic. And, and as soon as we would get into water where I couldn't touch, that was when I would just panic. I would just forget how to swim. And the minute I would forget how to swim, I start going under and he would always just say like, just relax. Like, it's 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 you it's your mind like whenever you panic it's not doing you any good anytime you feel scared you have to just relax even more and if you relax you'll know what to do and he'd always tell me that but 
but you know it wasn't until he finally just like you know left me one time and i thought i was seriously gonna drown um and then when i went under i just heard his voice saying that and i actually listened to it and i relaxed and the minute i relaxed i learned how to swim and after that it was just this repetitive advice you want to hold your breath longer relax and um and i think that that that's what has definitely helped me, you know, in times with sharks or strong currents or whatever. It's just, it almost becomes like this, it, it like, I have a different reaction now when something super scary or something, you know, really frightening happens in front of me, whether it's a car accident, whether it's a big shark coming at me, whatever it is. Instead of panicking, I feel myself now go into this almost zen-like place. And I just like go to this almost like, I don't want to say numb, but just this very relaxed place because I know that that's how serious the situation is. And that's the only way I can operate safely. And Still so, hear dad's voice? I do. I mean, honestly, as a grown woman, every time I get scared, um, it is, it is, um, always going back to what my dad says that helps me out. And when I first started spearfishing on my own as an adult, I was living on Oahu. I was 24 years old. And basically, I hadn't really done much of this since I was a kid. But all these memories were still haunting me and just still like, you know, I just thought like, wow, I am suffering from the most chronic case of nostalgia ever. And I looked up the definition of nostalgia and it said longing for something that no longer exists. I'm like, yep, that's what I have. But but then I started questioning that and thinking, you know, maybe it can exist and maybe I just have to try. So this I, was after school? This is after college. I think that's what happened is I went to college, I got a job and it was like the end of the road. What did you study? I went for culinary arts. So yeah, what my mom taught me was cooking. And so I went for that got a job in the restaurant industry. But the minute I realized like there's no more path to follow, there's no more education, there's no school, like this is this is your life and this is what you chose. Um, that was when I realized like, you know, there's this thing that's been tapping you on the shoulder and calling you back your whole life and you haven't even tried it yet. And so I went out and I got a three prong spear and I was like, okay, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna just try remember what I saw my dad doing and give it a go. And I was on the North shore of Oahu I didn't have any partners. Anytime I tried to ask somebody if they take me, they didn't really take me seriously. So I went by myself and I just remember walking across the beach that day and feeling so embarrassed, like holding this spear and feeling like such an imposter. And people like looked at me and I just felt like, oh, they know I have no idea what I'm doing and I don't. And I got in the water and it wasn't really the best day to go diving, it was pretty dirty. And I had no idea where to swim. And I was getting freaked out, you know, I just was looking over my shoulder, I was thinking about sharks, I didn't know where to go. Um, and then the most interesting thing happened is, you know, off in the distance, because it was so windy that day, this white cap on the surface broke. But as soon as it broke, I saw bubbles. And those bubbles reminded me of the bubbles I would see left from my dad's fins when I was following him. And, you know, cause dad, 
you would swim so fast and never look back for me. And sometimes I would get distracted and look down and see a turtle or see something pretty. And I'd look up and I have no idea where you were. <laughs> that was my only job was keep up. He was chasing down dinner. But as, as, as long as I could see the bubbles left by your fins, I knew, right. oh, that's where to go. And so that day, even as a grown woman, as soon as I saw these bubbles, I just felt this calm come over me. Because I think as a little kid, you know, your dad is your superhero. You, you can't go wrong following him. As long as he's there, you're safe. And so even as a grown woman, the minute I saw those bubbles, I'm like, that's where to go and I'm safe. And, and I felt that calm. And so then I started using that as a trick. And that's what I would do is anytime I felt uncertain, I felt scared. Even if I had to squint my eyes and imagine his silhouette in the distance, even if I had to squint my eyes and imagine bubbles, I would do that because the minute I would do that, my confidence would be back and I'd have that much more in me. And that day I did eventually get to a reef. And when I did, I looked down and I saw the fish that I recognized as a child. And, um, and it took me a lot of tries and a lot of hours, but I was able to get six of them that day. And the woman that came out of the water walking across the sand was just a completely different person than the one that went in. And I just knew, like, this is it. This is what I need to do. What kind of fish was it? They were tiny little fish. They were only like five inches. They were a hole hole. Good fish. A great fish. All the fish that we grew up eating, you know, a hole hole and, and pachi and a veo veo and cole. And, and I came out with that and... And not only did I hold my head much higher walking out of the water, but when I went home that night and cleaned those fish the way my mom taught me to and cooked them, I realized eating that dinner, I had just made my favorite dinner of my whole culinary career. <laughs> so that told me something, you know. I remember you calling me and saying, you know, you didn't teach me how to spear fish. And she was really getting on me. And I said, what are you talking about? You know how to do all of that. And... Because I had never touched a spear. I was too young. Yeah, she was too young. But I said, no, you got it. Just do it. And then the next thing, she's giving me a superstar. <laughs> you had a job. You had I to did. be there the next day. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for your life to change course? Oh, it took a while, actually. But what, what spearfishing did is it added a happiness to my life I didn't have. You know, it, it felt like falling in love where, you know, one, one day I really didn't like this job. And the next day it didn't matter how shitty that job was because I was walking on clouds. I could just close my eyes and that whole scene of what I saw underwater would be right there waiting for me. And I so I kept working for the years to come. You know, I didn't figure out the financial part for a while but I had this thing I had this secret I had this thing that I loved that anytime I had a day off anytime I had a few hours off I could go do it and that was enough for me but I would say it probably whew, it probably took me about um maybe about six years I don't know it was pretty Really? I don't know. I, I worked as I worked in the restaurant and then I quit that job. And you were cooking? I was cooking. And then I became an art teacher. Um, and I was teaching little kids art. And then I had more time off to go to go diving and I go diving. And then eventually I quit that job because I felt like if I'm encouraging all of these kids that I'm teaching art to that they can really be an artist, I have to prove it. So I tried to be an artist and um, and and dive on the side and I mean, I was just barely able to support myself. I would have to paint paintings all the time. And, and I painted 
you know, I would paint little fish on chucker hats because those sold way better than my paintings. And so I'd have to paint a lot of hats to make the bills, you know, on the rent. Um, but but it gave me the freedom as, as long as I turned myself into this one woman sweatshop, you know, for X amount of days of the month, then I could decide my own schedule. And when the weather was good, I could go and I started going and and um, and then I would say I probably became you know, completely self-sufficient or financially independent from, from just diving when I was 10 years. Yeah, definitely within the last 10 years. Yeah. Within. How did that work? I would say probably within the last eight years, probably eight years ago. From from shooting those fish with the three prong that mm -hmm, day. Right. To developing your, your skill today, your breath holds, yep. your, your depth. How did every time you went out, you pushed each of those a little farther? Well, so basically, you know, once I started getting good with the three prong, um, which was really all based on memory from what I saw my dad doing, then I started showing up at the barbecues with my own fish. And then all those boys that didn't take me seriously, when I asked them if they'd take me diving, started taking me a lot more seriously because I started showing up my own fish. And then I got dive partners and I just soaked it up like a sponge with every dive partner that called me to go. I went and with every dive partner I went diving with, I learned something new because everybody has something to teach you. And, um, and after, you know, like a year of just going with a three prong, finally, um, finally, you know, one of them gave me a hand me down gun and and then they taught me how to hunt with a spear gun and then word started getting around in the little diving community on oahu about me and um and then these national these these national champions heard about me these guys that represented hawaii and went off and won you know united states national championships in spearfishing freediving heard about me and they just you know finally one day called me and took me diving and they they were just so impressed with my ambition that they kind of decided to make me their little project and they just trained me. I mean, they, I didn't, you know, my, my dad and I, we would die of like super old school, like really, you know, no weight belts, no wetsuits, like we three prong, you know, fish to eat. But I had never thought about it like as a sport, as an accomplishment, as that kind of thing. And these guys and still weren't thinking it was something you could do for a living. No, I was just intrigued. Like the moment I saw the way they dove, I was just like, what? Like you can go that deep, like you can shoot fish that big. That's possible. Like I didn't even know that. And and they had, you know, they had already won all their trophies that they needed to win. And and I think even more than that, they had lost you know, some good partners and good friends from freediving, from shallow water blackout that when they took me under their wing, they not only wanted to make me the best that they could, but they wanted to make me the safest that they could. And they saw that my ambition could also be very dangerous for me. And so they taught me both safety um, to do these depths that, that they did and, um, and taught me just, you know, how to, how to hunt on a whole nother level that I didn't know existed. And within three years of diving with them, I just wanted to follow in their footsteps. And so uh, one day I just decided I want to do the national championships. I want to give that a try. I had never gone spearfishing outside of Hawaii before. And I just decided that 
And um, it turned out that that year, the national championships was in Rhode Island, which is so not like Hawaii, um, but it rotates every year. And that's where it was. And I said, I'm going. And it was expensive. And I had to sell a lot of paintings to get there. I had no sponsors. But and I, I only was able to get there four days before the tournament because I couldn't afford to put myself up in accommodations, you know, any longer than that. Um, most people got there a lot earlier to scout it out. But um, but yeah, four days. As soon as I got there, I realized how out of my league I was. The water was murky. I couldn't even see my own fins. It was cold. I never wore a wetsuit that thick. Um, I wasn't able to like perform the way I thought that I could when I first started scouting. But but once I just, again, relaxed into it and trusted it, then I was slowly able to figure it out. And, and I ended up winning the national championships. So that, I think, is what kind of put me on the board and got got some attention from people. It still took me a while. What was to... that dive like? I mean, Take us through that. Yeah, I won. What's that? Rookie of the year, she won that. Yeah, I pretty much won every category I was eligible to place in, and then I got awarded rookie of the year. And I mean, basically, I mean, when it comes to to diving, there, I just remember when I first started to to try and dive, I would just like, yeah, I, I couldn't even make it to the bottom at first because I get so freaked out because the water was just so dark down there. Um, but finally, when when I did make it to the bottom, the muscles filtered the water there, and I could see. And I also learned to listen, which I wasn't used to doing underwater. But the fish eat the muscles, so you can hear them coming before you see them. And I figured that out in the four days. But on tournament day, gosh, what that dive was like! It was, it it was amazing. I mean. I was just so happy to be there. Like that's what it was. That was that was the only competition to this day that ever felt like that to me. Every competition after that felt like I was chasing something that what it was different. But this one, I wasn't I was happy to be there. And as it was a kayak meet and as soon as they blew the horn, then you're able to paddle to your spot and and then I just realized, like, and I had a song going in my head the whole time. I was just singing because I was so happy to be there. And as soon as I started paddling, I realized, like, oh, this is why I paddled all throughout high school. This is why I did competitive paddling. Even though I knew it was never quite where I belonged, it wasn't exactly my sense of belonging, I did it for this. And it's paying off now. And I started to just, like, passing these big men you know as i was paddling and i it just felt so good like paddling upwind and just passing all these guys and i'm like wow look look at this this is this is meant to be like that's why you paddled and um i got to my spot which was really far away super early i jumped in and i started swimming and i'm like this is why you're on the swim team in high school. You know, Christy kind of forced me to do that. My sister kind of guilt tripped me into that. I never <laughs> liked it, but it's paying off now. And then the minute I started to dive, it was crazy. I just started seeing the flashes of every face that helped me with diving from my dad to my mom, to my mentors, to everyone. And then I just started seeing everyone that helped me like financially, like with buying a painting, with buying a, you know, I'd, paint things on hats and t-shirts, buying a shirt, like, and I just, before I knew it, I was just so overwhelmed with gratitude for being right there in that moment because it just felt like such a pivotal point in my life that I recognized while it was happening 
and that every moment in my life seemed to be leading up to this moment. And right when that gratitude just became overwhelming, the biggest fish I had seen just swam right by. You were at the bottom next to the mussels and the clear color. I was actually just starting to go up. I had looked around, there was nothing there. I was just starting to come up. How and deep right, were you? I was about 60 feet. And maybe when I like reached 50 feet, I was already in the murk. And I just saw something. And I couldn't quite make it out. And I swam towards it. And I was like, oh, that's a big, big striped bass. <laughs> and, um, and I ended up just shooting it with this little 90-centimeter gun. And it just took me for a ride. And I just was horsing this fish in. The minute I got into my hands, it fought so hard it knocked my mask off my face like like thank goodness I didn't lose my mask because it got caught on my ponytail um because that would have put me out for the rest of the meat but right then I was able to grab my knife that I had I was wearing on my arm and and put the knife in its brain and um and and then I looked at how big this fish was and tried to put it in my kayak. And then I just knew like this was going to be a good day. <laughs> was the kayak anchored or is it tethered it was to you? Anchored. you just drop a it small was anchored, anchor. small anchor. Yeah. Yeah. And then from that day on, it just, it just went like that. I mean, honestly, it was a lot of luck. I mean, it definitely was skill meets opportunity, but um that type of opportunity doesn't always come. And so it was just one of those magical days. It you was say awesome. that kind of competition lost its luster for you after that? Right after that, basically. Um, I came home and... For yeah, the f- where do you go from world champion? Well, <laughs> I mean, basically, I just wanted to keep chasing these championships. And, and I did. And I continued to do well at them. But... I didn't have the song in my head anymore. Like I really, you know, and I, now I was getting there a month in advance cause I had, you know, people throwing down money to support me and sponsors helping me go. And all of a sudden it felt different. Like I would get to a place a month in advance and all I would be doing is scouting. All I would be doing is going down and looking at fish, not even eating them for dinner, just looking at them and saving them for tournament day, looking at them as points, you know? That's all I saw them as is points. And then I'd go home and, and you know, buy, buy food from a restaurant and eat and wake up and do it all over again the next day just for one day of competing to go home with or without a trophy. And by the time I went home, I realized I didn't even see that place. Like I got to travel the world, I didn't even get to meet the people. They didn't even get to eat the real food. They didn't even get to find out how they cook their fish. You know, like I just came home with the trophy. I didn't come home with those same memories and experiences. And um, and it, it just it lost its luster quite quickly. Where where I guess got to a point where I was very confused. And and then I started asking myself and my my dive partners questions like. When we were supposed to be training, I would just start asking questions like, why is it important to be better than other people? And I started questioning things, you know, and they'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know. We compete. Why is it so important to be better than other people? And like, no, Kimmy, don't think about it like that. Just think of it as being your best. And I'd be like, but I can be my best without being better than the person next to me. Why is that my only goal right now? And when they couldn't answer those questions, I just realized like, I think, I don't know, I don't think competition's good for me. I have nothing against it. But, you know, and that first one will always be magical to me. But um, but I just came to a point where it was changing my relationship with the ocean, where even when I was going out in my own backyard to try and get 
those same little fish to eat for dinner, all I could do was look around and think about points and think about strategy. And it used to be my quiet place. It used to be the place where I would go where my noisy mind would finally shut off and I would just be absolutely present. And that's what was so cleansing and beautiful about it. And all of a sudden, it was the noisiest place to be. Um, I didn't like that. And so within a year and a half of winning the national championships that first time, um, I quit. You know, and I quit at a time that was so inconvenient because it was right when I was kind of about to make it. It was right when it seemed like like I could actually make a living for myself using time spent underwater, which was my goal. And um, and that was when I walked away and I went back to painting hats, you know, and um, and I totally, you know, I, I felt lost. I felt confused. I felt a lot of things like that but um but slowly I just I just got back in the water again at first I just left the spear gun at home and um and I just went back out and I just like started looking at fish I started looking at little fish forgetting about the big fish and then eventually I started spearing fish but it's again it was the same reasons my dad did it because I had to because I wasn't quite able to you know, to survive off of just painting hats and paintings anymore. And, um, and so I planted a garden and I would spear fish to, to feed myself. And then all of a sudden it started making me happy again. And I just realized like, that's why I got into diving is for that. And, and yeah, it sucks if you're no longer, you know, like if you're a quitter, you're a champion, but honestly, as long as you have this relationship with this ocean, this ocean has loved you your whole life. Like, as long as you still have that feeling, like, you know, keep that. And, um, and then as, as I kept doing it and kept doing it and found my happiness coming back, I also just realized like, Hey, you know, I still do want to travel. I just want to travel in a different way. I don't want to just travel to compete. And, um, and yeah. And so whenever, you know, with, with being able to spearfish and feed myself and grow my garden, you know, I was able to save some money and not just from that, but, but also, you know, I realized that I had become (laughs) really protective of my prey where sometimes I would catch a fish that was big enough to share. And so I would just give a filet to a neighbor, but I'd always check up on that neighbor or whoever and be like, Hey, how'd you like that fish I gave you? And most, sometimes they would just be like, Oh, Oh yeah, that fish. You know, I think it's still in the freezer. I put it in the freezer and then I would just like cross that person off my list. And um, and I'm like, oh, no, that's not how you treat, you know, these fish that you know, I really respect my prey. And so I would go through extreme lengths, sometimes drive across the island to get this fish into the hands of the person that I knew would appreciate it. And like I said, I just did that, you know, out of like respect for that fish's life and the hard work it took to get there that I wanted somebody who would appreciate it just as much as I did. But when I did that, something amazing happened. And the amazing thing was that in the next few days that came, I'd find chicken eggs at my door. I'd find avocados. I'd find other garden greens. I'd find mangoes. And before I knew it, without even spearing my own fish once a week, I had more food than I could eat, you know? And so with that, it really started to spark this thought of, sustainability of simple, you know, practices of taking care of your community of all these ideas, but also it helped me save money. And with that money I saved, I now was able to travel. And so from then on, I would save my money and I would take a trip 
but not to compete. I would take a trip to to question these ideas more, to ask other cultures what they felt about community, what they felt about sustainability. I'd want to ask them like, hey, you know, the ocean I'm looking at in my backyard doesn't look the same as I remember it looking when I was four or five. The color of the coral is different. The amount of fish is different. Like, what are you seeing in your backyard? And I just was curious. I just wanted these answers. Like, also, how do you cook your fish? You know, what's your favorite way to do it? And as I got this information, I just started sharing it in any way I could, whether it was writing free articles for magazines or posting things online. And as I did that, this following grew. And, um, and then before I knew it, like, I, I started getting hit up for sponsorships and I started having people who did want to support me because they valued these things. And so even though I thought that by walking away from competition, I was giving up any chance of making a living for myself with time spent underwater, it did the exact opposite. You going inside, Jim? Oh, careful. Good catch. Let me help you. Okay, let's see you. You got it. I got it. Okay. No falling down. Nope, not allowed. No falling. I can't even run. No, don't even choke. Okay, Are you sure you have it? I got it. Okay. That was awesome, Kimmy. Tell me, tell me again how hunting for the meaning of it became besides the community you developed, how the sponsors took note of you? Um, well, I mean, basically, I think I just like, first of all, this like following grew of people who shared these same values and shared these same ideas. And then, and then it ended up being um, companies who valued these things, who valued the outdoors and our relationship to it. So, it's almost as if I wasn't thinking big enough the first time around when I was just trying to go for trophies. I was just hoping that, you know, spearfishing companies would sponsor me and people, you know, and that's it. That's all I could think of. That was the niche I fit in. Um, that's a pretty tiny market. Isn't it? <laughs> it was tiny. Yeah. It probably wasn't the, the most like rational goal to begin with. Um, but then when I thought I quit everything and I thought I was giving it all up to pursue what really interested me, it turned out that that resonated with um, a much larger demographic of people. And so it was all these outdoors companies that started approaching me and just saying like, we like what you're doing. Like, we like how you're living and we want to see more of it, you know, or could you use some of our products while you do it? And, um, and so, so it was, a, it was another just slow process. And even in that I had to definitely you know, learn my own value and learn that this is work and find my own voice to to realize that if a company's making money off of me, I should also be making something too. That took me way too long to figure out. But um but but slowly I was able to do that and um and it was neat because I I feel like more importantly, I was able to find ways to bridge these worlds that felt like two different worlds to me. Um when I started getting really into sustainability, you know, here in the islands, I started learning about um, invasive species, like these fish that were imported from our government to, you know, just add to our ecosystem that ended up being a horrible idea and that ended up eating all the native fish and all of this. And, and with that, it's like, well, you know, it didn't take too long to figure out some solutions to it because I came from 
the world of competitive spearfishing. And so with a great group of people, you know, based here on Maui, we were able to to do these um, these tournaments. So I got back into competitive spearfishing, kind of, because we started doing these invasive-only meets where, okay, let's hold these tournaments. Let's hold spearfishing tournaments, but the only thing you can shoot is invasive species. And every single fish you're shooting is saving 150 native fish. So guess what? There's not going to be any bag limits on this one. Go for it, you know? And, and it was neat because it almost, it helped give more creative ideas when you have you know tolerance for both sides of the spectrum and respect for both of it and i don't know i kind of feel like one of the most the biggest turning points for me one of the biggest ones is when um was when i was told i was being inducted into the spearfishing freediving hall of fame and um and i i that was that had been my goal from when i first started competing and you can either get inducted for being a contributor or a competitor, but a contributor is somebody who like invents a new spear gun or invents a new you know material to make fins out of and does something very innovative to help the sport. Whereas a contrib or a competitor is just based off the points you earn from competing alone. And it turned out that in that short period of time, I had earned enough points and awards where I was being inducted, and um, and that was a big deal for That's me. That's awesome. I was I was the first female and the youngest person, and um, mom and dad flew up for that, and that was really cool. But that day, when they were inducting me, and I was standing next to all these legends that I looked up to, they read off like this proclamation inducting me, and I heard them say that I was being inducted as a competitor and a contributor, and I looked at them to see if they made a mistake. And then they said that um, that I was being inducted for contributing extreme environmental awareness to the spearfishing and fishing communities that they were eternally grateful for. That's amazing. So that, yeah, that to me, I just think, I don't know, I just think everyone deserves a place at the table, you know? And in my weird roundabout way, I kind of had to explore different sides of it to find out who I really was. But I think because of that, it just created... Um, created a path that's more authentic to who I am. But also I think a big goal is just getting people who might think they're on different sides to kind of bridge that gap and see that we're all in this together. We're not going to get anywhere unless we work together. And so, so I think that, um, how much blowback have you received over the years from people who perhaps uninformed, uneducated about the sustainability of bringing your own food home? We're not talking about, you're right. supplying restaurants and stores with fish. You're oh, yeah. hunting fish for your own consumption. I used to get hate all the time. <laughs> Dad remembers the names of people because he's on Facebook and he, he gets... He made a list of them, yeah. Chris. <laughs> I wrote to her. I finally couldn't. I don't, I don't even know who that is, but he remembers. You disgusting killer. You that, that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. I don't know, sometimes it's, Super why don't you go kill yourself instead? Yeah. You know, like, I hope you die, like, the way that you made that innocent animal die. Like, it's crazy the type of hate that, that comes she in at times. That she was bad. I told her. Because she'd always tell Kimmy, what did you, did you thank the fish for giving its life and should rather live? And I finally got disgusted. I said, would you thank that carrot you pulled up and ripped out of the garden? 
you know, I'm sure I would have rather lived too. Never heard from her again. Sweet, her. ran her off. Well, yeah, I mean, and that's. Always be too nice. No, no, no. So, so okay. So that is at first how I would respond to. It's good to have old dad in your corner. It's it? always good. <laughs> it, it is, and and in the beginning, when when I would get like you know comments and stuff, you know, filled with like anger from people. Um, I would respond back with with the same anger and throw it right back at them in that same way. You know, because a lot of times it just came from such hypocritical places where sometimes it wasn't, you know, like people that would say, like, how dare you kill that innocent animal? I'd go look at at what they were doing and they'd be eating, eating cheeseburgers and steaks and lobsters yeah, a and McFish sandwich with their leather purse. Right. And and so I would get so mad that I would just, you know, smash them. But, you know, and I had a loyal following who they would they would do it too they would defend me and they'd smash them too and 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 sometimes you know people would would get so embarrassed because we we smash them so hard that they would go delete their accounts and then i just realized like well that's not cool like you didn't bring them in to knowledge i just yeah exactly i just thought like kimmy if you're serious about this if you really believe in sustainability if you really believe everyone should have a seat at the table why are you smashing people? Why are you being defensive? And then, you know, my other side of my brain said, because they're ignorant. And then I thought, or maybe you're ignorant. Um, and and I had never thought about it that way before, but I just thought perhaps I'm the one that's ignorant because if I hadn't grown up the way that I grew up, you know, if I didn't grow up watching my parents do this work if i didn't grow up watching firsthand where food came from if you were removed from that sustenance lifestyle exactly would that be my fault no yeah but but who knows what my perspective would be maybe i just grew up in a society which is the majority of people grow up in a society where you don't have to think about where food comes from in fact you're encouraged not to think about it you're encouraged to just think about the convenience of buying it and putting it in your mouth and eating it. And you're not encouraged to, it's, it's not even a transparent system that's feeding you. So if I had grown up with that system my whole life, you know, maybe I wouldn't even think about that, but maybe there's this inner part of me that truly does care about the environment that truly does, you know, want to do good. And then I see a person with a spear, of course, a knee-jerk reaction would be, how dare you? Right. And, and so I'm like, you know, the very small, small percentile that was lucky enough to be raised in a way where I saw the truth. And, um, and if I hadn't, I might have a hard time connecting the dots myself. And once I thought about it that way, I just thought, okay, remove your ego, remove your defense. And anytime you get an angry message, Think of it as a cry for help. Think of it as that same passion that you feel towards the environment, but just in the most misguided yeah. way possible. But don't think it's of it displaced. as an enemy. Yes. Because ocean decline, the numbers of fish, All quality of, of fisheries around the world, problems. that's serious. But yeah. hunting with a spear for the fish you eat that night is not a contributor. Exactly. And, and I just think that people... That's such a far-fetched way of thinking for people who don't have to think about that. And so then the next time I got a hateful comment, instead of reacting to it, I just said, 
thank you so much for caring about the environment just as much as I do. Like, I really appreciate that. And just to let you know, like, the reason why I spearfish is because it's the most selective way that I know to hunt. Like, there's no bycatch. There's nothing. I'm totally within this environment. I can see what footprint I'm doing. I have to work very hard for it. At the end of the day, I'm coming up with what I need. And that makes me feel more honest and more accountable than just like going to the store or going to McDonald's because I see on their profile, they're doing that and, and doing it that way. And I said, because if you're doing it that way, you're still a killer. You're still killing. You're just doing it in mass numbers and you're paying somebody else to do the dirty work. With bycatch. Yeah, Yeah, there's, exactly. a, there's a gut pile related to everything we can right. say. But the minute I would treat them like that, it was so amazing because 99% of the times that I would just get an apology, a thank you, you know, and especially some of the most hateful comments because I think, you know, you, you know, and some of them are totally vegan and they are. And then I would just say, hey, thanks for being a vegan. I really appreciate that. Like you're really examining your choices and trying to make them in harmony with the world. I'm doing that too. And this yeah. is how I'm doing it. Read you know? the, car the, the omnivore's dilemma, you know. Yeah. Even even the mass vegetable market has oh, consequences on the ocean. Totally. No, exactly. And you could get so deep into it, you know, like exactly though. Like when it comes to industrial farming and and the effect that that has, like basically there's no simple right or wrong answer and all we can do as humans is look at our individual choices and make what feels authentically right choices to our way of living and as long as you're even trying to examine your choices then you should consider the person next to you doing that on your team because a lot of people aren't even trying and the minute i started addressing them as people who are also on my team because i think maybe they're they're somehow trying even if they're trying is attacking me you know um they i think they just got disarmed because they almost expected me to be so savage and so aggressive and and when they ended up being the ones that looked like that and i was you know and they're telling me i have no compassion when all i'm doing is speaking to them with respect and compassion all of a sudden it makes them listen a little more good move and um and then before i knew it my my supporters my following they started picking up on that and now, even to this day, when I get a hateful comment, like now, because I don't check my Instagram all the time, but if I'll get, get to it a day late, I'll see that even my supporters, if someone says something mean, they'll, they'll do the same thing. Hey, thanks for caring about the environment. And they'll take the same thing. Everyone's laying down the swords and trying to help educate each exactly. other. Exactly. And it's just such a better way. Because at the end of the day, I can win you with an argument. I know I could. But what did that really win? You know? me being right or or did i actually like help the cause that i'm claiming to believe in when did your ted talk happen how did you get approached was that you know i um i had done this one this one i had only spoken public once before and it was a very intimate setting a small group of people and i don't know if that had anything to do with it but it was a magical moment. It felt really good. It was my first time speaking in front of strangers. Um, and I was always very nervous about public speaking. When I had to do presentations in college, I'd get so shaky, I'd almost start to cry. And um, and for whatever reason, that one, it went good. And I felt safe with these people. And I spoke and I was heard and it felt amazing. And then the next week, they didn't refer to it or say anything about it, but I just... Um, 
I got this invitation that um, that said, you know, we'd, we'd like to invite you um, to apply to to do a TED talk. And then the day after that, they said, um, you can disregard that we're not inviting you to apply. And I thought, oh, man. And they said, um, you're in. Just tell us if you want to do it. And so I don't know. I don't know how that happened. I don't I've know. It's awesome. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, start. To you guys. You've known her since she was born. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was so nervous. I was so nervous because I was the opening speaker of that whole thing. And I did walk on that on that stage and and I was scared and I was shaking and I felt the same thing that would happen when I would get shaky in college (laughs) and I was gonna cry. And I felt my heart beating fast. Did you hear your dad say relax? I just realized like (laughs) You have to relax and you have to take a moment. And so I went up on stage and I got shaky. And then the first thing I just did is I just went. (sighs) And I just took a breath. And I thought thought you were going to hold that breath for like five minutes. (laughs) And then after that, it it all went good. It went really good. Yeah, you kind of unfolded like a flower. (laughs) Did you guys guys ever foresee that you're your early days in that sugar shack where you had to pull the pots and pans out to catch rain from the leaky roof and spearing fish and trying to build a career for yourself, Chris, that you would, that you'd raise an individual like this that w- would impact the world, impact Not the really, sea like no, she does. You can't, you know, you just... And you listen to her talk and it's simply from the love that she yeah, witnessed you guys, the, the kindness and the love that you shared for each other as a family. I think a lot of it too is, Having my own business, I could. I was so in love with my daughters, you know, that I would take off work early just to come home and play with them, you know. And uh, where we lived in this old ramshackle shack, but we had a puna line, like a water dish behind it, and we would go up there and uh, float down it, you know, and it was just really a fun time. And swim in this ocean that we're looking yeah. at right now on the shores <laughs> of, of Maui. Incredible. It it was really incredible and and it was always like it's fun to harvest your own food and eat it you know it was just fun I think it's one of the most gratifying things on earth yeah I do too and there's an added there's an added bonus when through the mistakes of man Mm -hmm. that we're left with all this cleanup to do um you know I remember when Mark Healy was on Lanai with Shane and I just a few days ago, he got a negative comment from someone. Mm-hmm. He took a very beautiful, respectful picture of of the Axis um, skin, uh, the pelt with with the deer lying there. But it just showed an antler and the and the and the uh, the coloration of of its fur. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it was, I mean, I would frame it, put it on my wall. And he got this hateful. Those animals need control. They they yeah, they reproduce at twenty percent mm-hmm. per year. If they if they go unmanaged, they destroy the watersheds. They eat the little little flowers. They eat the little little sprouts of koala yeah. trees, and you and you lose you you lose the reef from the erosion exactly. of the dirt. Everything's it's connected. So um, and just from a bonus of being a human being, and you enjoy the pursuit of hunting, you can help solve a problem by by controlling these deer by eating these deer by eating these small fish that were introduced and causing harm i mean totally i think i think people i think because of the generation that we're growing up in where 
where we just see the decline in everything in the environment and the oceans. And, you know, it's because we're doing everything at this, at this scale that, that, that the world can't quite sustain if we keep going. But I think, um, you know, a lot of people from that generation then say, okay, then we shouldn't, we shouldn't do it at all. We shouldn't kill anything. We shouldn't hunt anything. And I don't think that's the answer. And anybody who spends true time out in nature, you know, hunting will understand that that's not the na- that that's not the answer is because you really get to know your ecosystem when, when you have to hunt something like you have to whether, whether you're hunting on land and you have to have your face down in the dirt and you get to know every single plant around you, you know which ones are pokey which ones are scratchy which ones make noise when you walk past them which ones are cool like you get to know that environment so much more than I think people realize. And it's the same underwater. You get to understand it. And so, you know, when, when people come up with these notions of like, oh, no, you just shouldn't, you should not kill any deer. It's just like, you're exactly right. Like the effect that that would have on the environment would not be good. And, and I just think that it's a, it's a balance. It's a, it's, it's a middle point between what we're doing now and and what you know what some people think we should do of just turning it all off and not doing it all. I mean, we are animals. Like, I think people forget that we, we, the more civilized we get, we start to think that you know we're we're not a part of this actual ecosystem and we have to save this ecosystem. But but that that somehow to them means removing ourselves from the ecosystem. It's like no no no. Like we're a part of this animal kingdom. And you'll be happier the deeper into that you, you view go. yourself. Yeah. Totally. And and I think for me definitely, you know, hunting for my own food, that's what connects me to this earth. That's what makes me understand it more. That's what makes me understand like the harmony of it and um, and the responsibility of it. And it's not just removing myself from it. Like that's going to create an imbalance that others I don't think could even understand. But like you say, if the deer were to multiply on the level that they would multiply on without any predator hunting it, which they don't have any natural predators here, um, the erosion that would cause, what it would do to our reefs, the fish it would kill, like those are all things that are so hard for people to think about when they're not that deeply involved, but it's all so true. Yeah. I'm not as educated as I could be. I've got a long way to go, but I'm determined to learn as much about the animals and the fish in Hawaii as I can. (laughs) So how deep can you swim? How long can you hold your breath? Um, my deepest dive is 159 feet, like just, you know, swimming down. At one time, my friend said, he threw me his anchor and I rode his anchor down and it bottomed out at like 186, but that was kind of cheating because I, I wasn't kicking the whole way. Um, but honestly, I, I don't really, I haven't really pushed it in that arena and same with breath holding. Like there was one time this, um, this free dive, free diver, like trainer came through town and. And he trained me and he like, you know, had me hold my breath um, in the water, but said, you know, but if you if you black out, I'm not going to train you for the deep diving. And so I kind of didn't even push it that day, but it was still my longest breath. hold. that was um, four minutes and 45 seconds. I do think that there's just a lot more potential for for all of us to do a lot more than that. But um, but that just hasn't really quite been those numbers. I think I try and keep my way myself away from from numbers these days and 
and from records and stuff like that. And I really try and just keep the focus on because that's not food. really fishing, right? No, I mean, I'm sure it helps my, to have that. Tool my in whole your bag, thing but... is I know, okay, if I held my breath for four minutes and 45 seconds, that's cool. But when I'm hunting, I will actually limit myself to two minutes underwater because you still got to fight the fish and yeah, deal with the kill, exactly. Right? Yeah, sometimes I go a little over two minutes, but. But anything could go wrong. You know, you could you could see a big shark and your heart rate could spike and that could take some oxygen. Or you could shoot a really big fish and have to struggle with it. So you always want your reserves. But I've also found that if I can't bring a fish in in a minute and a half, I'm doing something wrong. And I might as well go back up to the surface, reevaluate my strategy and try a different approach rather than just try and wait it out and count on breath hold alone. Cause it's the way you move. It's, it's, it's everything that you do, you know, to, to pique a fish's curiosity. It's, it's everything you learn from other animals. It's mimicking other animals. It's all that kind of stuff that, that will bring a fish in because, cause that's the way I hunt. I don't swim towards my fish. I make them swim towards me. And if I can't make a fish swim towards me in that amount of time, then I know I got to try a different approach. How do you do that? You want all my secrets. (laughs) Um, There's so many different ways and it really depends on what fish you're hunting. But, um, but I, I, I mean, sometimes it's just a good hiding place and, um, and just making like certain noises, taking two rocks and rubbing them together. You know, sometimes it's mimicking a stingray feeding because when stingrays feed, their wings fluff the sand. And when they fluff the sand, they're actually turning over, you know, a lot of crustaceans and little, little small particles of food. And so when the fish see, you know, the sand being fluffed by a stingray, they come right in knowing that that's a dinner bell. So I can mimic that just by taking handfuls of sand and throwing it, you know. Um, a huge thing is just don't make eye contact like just never ever ever do that Um, unless it's a shark and you want to hold your ground then look right at it and and, you know I just find that with fish the more that I I act passive and I act submissive and I use this body language where I'm kind of protecting my vitals or turning away or being shy the fish kind of think that I'm hiding. They obviously can see me, but that makes them curious about me and they'll come in. And then waka. Exactly. <laughs> However, with a shark, that's almost a natural thing to do. You see a shark and you're like, ah, you protect your vitals, you turn away, you get shy. That's the worst thing you that's can do. Thing. Because wapa, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so instead, you want to be, you want to face that shark off. You want to be bold. You want to be big. You know, I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to overdo it and make them terrified but you basically want to match their energy um they're just bigger fish and so if you want a shark to come next to you then for sure turn away from it curl up into a ball you know be scared like all those types of things but if if you don't hold your ground whereas you know for the fish you want to hunt it's the opposite like it's it's all body language makes perfect sense yeah not necessarily intuitive but it makes perfect it's counterintuitive Yeah. yeah So like the first night I met you, someone showed me the video of you riding a great white. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that moment? I mean, people, yeah. biologists, scientists, photographers get thick metal cages dropped right. in the water to, to and that's just what take I was a view of those supposed to be in that day because that was actually, that was a trip to learn about great white sharks. So that was actually um, a research trip where I was supposed to be in a big metal cage. And that was the first time I ever got scuba certified because obviously if you're gonna be in a big metal cage for an hour, you know, you need to be on scuba. 
However, um, we went out there that day and and a place where great whites were supposedly, you know, supposed to, you know, be passing through a lot and nobody saw a single shark. And um, and it got to the point where people that day, that particular day, were just like falling asleep on scuba almost because it was so boring when you're just like in a cage looking at the blue. Were they chumming? Um, they were not. And so it just seemed improbable that we were going to see anything. And then, so at that point I just looked at the captain and I'm like, I just miss free diving. Do you mind if I just go free diving? You know, he's like, uh, there's no, no sharks today. Go for it. And, um, and I jumped in the water with my, with my buddy who wanted to come with me. He said, can I film you free diving? I said, sure. As soon as I jumped in the water, my mask started leaking. So I had my head above the water. I was trying to fix that leak, get the water out. And I just felt the arm of my friend grab, grab me, just grab me by the arm and just started shaking me like and screaming through his snorkel where I couldn't understand him, but I already knew what it meant. And so I immediately just put my face in the water. And by that time, this shark was about three feet away from me. It was just, the, it was the head of the biggest great white I had ever seen coming right at me. And, um, and as soon as I saw it, I just like let out this, this, this scream. But mm. as soon as I heard it, I recognized that it wasn't a scream of fear. And it was like a, woo. it was like that. And I think it was just this moment where somehow instinctually I knew there was no room for fear and whatever fear you felt just like, just like being on the stage doing a TED talk, whatever fear you feel, you have to turn that into courage. And that's all I did. And as soon as that happened, I just swam right at the shark. But the minute I did that, she just veered off and she just turned broadside. And then she just slowly passed me by. And as this adrenaline's going through me, I just noticed things. I noticed that as she passed me by, her fins lifted. And they became like really out like an airplane wing. And that's a good sign. That's a calm shark. When the fins are down, that's not a good sign. And the way that she was swimming was very slow. Once I did that, she just slowed down. And it wasn't these like mechanical, like erratic movements. And that's another good sign. And so as soon as I saw that, I, in that moment, I was able to appreciate the beauty in it. And, um, and then she went down to the big metal cage where there was a whole bunch of scientists who woke up immediately because now there's a 17 foot great white shark circling them in their cage. And, um, and she circled them a few times and I was on the surface because I just had my snorkel. And, um, and then she started swimming up towards me. And granted, she was going slow, but I will tell you when you're on the surface and you see a great white shark swimming vertically up at you, it, it gets you, you know? And, um, but in that moment, I just thought like, well, you can't outswim a great white, so you know what to do. And if she's swimming up at you, you have to meet her halfway. It is your absolute responsibility if you want to be safe, meet her halfway. And so when I saw her swimming up at me, took a breath and swam right back down at her. Just say, you're curious about me? I'm curious about you too. And as soon as I did that and I'd meet her halfway, then again, she would turn and veer off and just turn broadside, just so slow and so beautiful. And I had a little GoPro on my hand, so I started filming her. And same thing would happen. I'd go back up and she'd do a few circles. Again, never like the most comforting thing and come back up at me and i say, here we go again. And i do it again. And so I just kept passing her by. But then this one time, you know, when I was swimming down at her and she was swimming up at me, 
I reach this point of negative buoyancy, which means that even if I'm not kicking, I'm going to start sinking because of the pressure, you know, of the water. And so I got hit this point of negative buoyancy and I was just sinking. And this shark <laughs> just, she just kind of straightened out and was right underneath me. And I just realized I have two choices right now. I can do a quick turnaround and actually have to kick to make my way back up to the surface, which does not sound like a good idea. You know, think of cat and mouse or I'm going to land on this shark. And when I thought about those two choices, the answer that came to me, <laughs> it was just like three words that came to me and it just said, make it smooth. And that was all I heard was just make it smooth. So I just reached out my hand and just touched her, just let her know I was there, felt her skin and then just held on to her fin. And we just went for the most beautiful swim together. And she swam me right by all the people in the cage. And so that's how they got all that footage of me doing that. And, um, and actually we did that several more times. Like I, I barely released any of that footage because I wanted to be responsible about it. And I don't really want to encourage people to do like, go out there and try and ride sharks, which naturally anyway, any, everybody still is now. Um, but that was never my goal. I didn't want to make them circus animals. I didn't want to make this a daredevil stunt. Uh, that wasn't, I was always afraid of the effect that that footage would have, but I started leaking out anyway. There's still a whole bunch that I swear I'll never, I'll never show because we did that for about an hour. And, um, and it was just such a special moment. Like I, it was just like this really cool relationship of two predators just getting to know each other. You were without a spear. No spear, yeah. just the GoPro just on a you stick. you and the great white shark. Yeah. So at some point you had to kick to the surface, right? Yeah. How did you make that, that disconnection from her? So, I mean, I don't know. I think something about, and I don't want to get like too spiritual or weird or like I know what the shark was thinking because I don't but but I think it was such a foreign experience for both of us because when I would like when we would like you know glide off together she would just like slow down even more and it was just like she was taking it all in and figuring it all out so in those moments I kind of knew like this shark is not going to beeline it to the surface right now. Like she's still figuring out what she's just confused. happened. She's... Yeah. Like, I mean, not to be weird, but sometimes I just like say it's like two virgins for the first time that like we were just like something so awkward, but cool. But like, we knew we liked what we were doing, but we were still like, what just happened? You know, like, and, um, and so every time I left her, she would just like, honestly, she wouldn't even be moving her tail. And then I, by the time I got to the surface, she would kind of figure out like, that was cool. Let's try that again. So it wasn't a single back. ride. She'd come back and you'd she'd she'd grab on again. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Tammy, that's incredible. It was really cool. Do you think that moment led to your relationship with National Geographic? Some of the stuff you're doing now? Or just the collective of everything you know about I honestly underwater world? I think it's a collective of everything. I mean, definitely that great white shark ride was... Oh, you! I gotta show you this sketchbook I have at home. You know, it's so weird. Like I just um, yesterday when I came home, I started looking through this sketchbook that I had, and when I was 18 years old, um, and I had this art class, I went into class, and the teacher that day said, um, "said draw, draw what you dreamt last night," 
And if you can't remember what you dreamt last night, draw the last dream you can remember. But that's your assignment today. And I was like, whoa, that's weird that this happened today because I remember my dream and I drew it and I'll show you it because it trips me out. But the night before I dreamt of this huge shark and this is before I was even, you know, diving again. But I dreamt that I was in the water and I was naked and I was in this fetal position and this huge shark just kept swimming around me and I was so scared. And then all of a sudden, at some point in my dream, I realized that I had this protective bubble around me and that I was safe. And then all of a sudden, once I realized I was safe, then I was able to take in the beauty of that dream and it was like the most vibrant dream. And so I'll show you this picture that I drew because that is really interesting. But, um, but anyway, to answer your question, I think that that moment was was such a huge and crazy one that it definitely um, propelled me forward in a lot of ways. But I, I, I know that that it couldn't have done it solely. I know it's the accumulation of everything um, that my life has given me that kind of led to the opportunities that I got. And I think in a way, that's also why I don't release the rest of the footage is because I don't want to just bank on that. I sure. don't want to just use this one viral thing of riding sharks to be like my one-way ticket into success or into opportunity because if that's because that i mean i learned that first off because as soon as the footage started leaking out i can't tell you how much my phone rang with producers wanting to make shark riding tv shows and you know and people wanting to give me money for the footage but to use it to sell energy drinks or stuff that just didn't make sense to me and that was a point where i really had to ask myself like you know, what do you want to use this for and how do you want to use it? And I decided I wanted to use it sparingly, first of all, but I also wanted to use it to shine like a light on on being in harmony with the ecosystem, you know, on doing what we do, on being on both sides of it, of, of being a conservationist and being a hunter. And, um, and, and so that's what I tried to do in ever since, and I really tried not to milk it too much. <laughs> I sure hope it works to, to de-vilify those animals and help protect them. I, yeah, I, I definitely think that message is getting around a lot faster these days, and I have faith it's going to catch on. So just a couple more minutes of your time so you can go to dinner with your folks. Don't worry. Oh, we can come with us. Yeah, <laughs> you might as well join us. Yeah. What are you guys, what are you doing with the National Geographic? I know you just travel endlessly, which has its ups and downs, but you're going all over the world, meeting people that live like you and your folks lived in the early days, spending time with them. Um, what's your role with the National Geographic? That's such a huge achievement. Thank you. Um, I had I had a series with them a few years ago, um, and that was really fun. But the, the most recent one that I got, I can't quite like say, you know, the title or anything like that because it hasn't been released yet. Um, but but it, it's basically about going to these really, really rural places. And, and, and when I got hired for this, they had no idea. I don't think they had any idea of my upbringing. Um, maybe they did, but I don't think so. But I'm going to these really rural places and I've been living in these villages and living with these tribes of just beautiful minority 
indigenous people um, and learning from them, not being taken in as a tourist or a guest, but being treated as family and put to work immediately. Um, you know, every day when my camera crew goes home or goes back to like a nearby place where they can stay nearby hostel or, or house that they found that they can rent, I stay in the village. And, um, and basically the point is pretty much learning about not just their way of life and how it's been for a long time, but also with all of these cases, learning how the modern world is creeping into to their front door and how it's inevitable and it's happening now. And and just trying to learn the good and the bad about that, you know, what what they're benefiting from when it comes to education for their kids or whatnot or or whether, you know, what they're able to to use their beautiful culture and skills and adapt to this in a way that is, you know, progressive and helps them survive, or whether it's coming at a rate that's beyond their capacity to survive. And as I say that, I get really sad because I feel like I've definitely seen both cases. You know, I've been to some places where where I can really see the integration where it's gonna go in their favor. And I feel like their culture is going to remain strong and their values are going to remain strong. And then I also see it in places where, where power in the modern world is just, I don't think they'll be able to adapt at that capacity. And it makes me really sad. You so know? you're basically helping to put the, the, the real news out there and face the reality. Of I it. hope so. I really hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, you know, talent and, and I haven't, I haven't seen um, any of the cuts yet. It's not out yet, and I don't know how it'll be received. But um, but I definitely do my part to be as honest as I can the whole way through. Um, and and it just, I mean, it was just an absolute pleasure, like to be taken. And there's such a language barrier. Not none of these places, you know, um, spoke English. And most of the time when I was being filmed, I needed two translators to, to translate like the dialect into a more mainstream language and then that into English. And, um, and, and at first that was very awkward to like sit there and go through that all. But the thing is, is that when, once the crew and, and everybody left and the cameras left, I still stayed there and I had to talk, I had to figure out like, how can I use a bucket to get water and rinse myself off tonight? You know, like I had to communicate. You have to, if you're living there. And I, I, and what ended up being the hardest part, which was the language barrier ended up being the most beautiful part because I just realized that when I was all alone and needing to communicate with someone and they were trying that much harder to communicate with me too, when you're just looking in someone's eyes and trying your hardest, something happens and it almost made me realize that sometimes speaking the same language becomes this big facade because we can just bullshit you know we can just talk small talk and we can just carry on without being truly present but when you actually need to communicate to survive and you're looking in each other's eyes you're reading every wrinkle you're reading every expression and the crew will come back the next day and and I'd be carrying on, and the translators would start. I'd be like, oh, I understand what he's saying, and I and you know, and um, and I didn't understand the words, but you understand the meaning that much more. And so, yeah, it was definitely a he heartfelt project, and I just I wish I could talk more about it. Is it, it. still going on, or have y'all um, completed? I'm totally wrapped, and so we'll see what happens. You know, it, it should should be out later this year, and um, hopefully, I get to do more of it.
But regardless, like it, I just I'm so happy for the experience. You know, I think before when I would do TV shows, I'd, I'd be thinking about the ratings. I'd be thinking about, is there going to be a season two? Are people going to like it? What are they going to think of me? What are they going to think of this project? With this, I'm just like, I'm just so happy I got to do it. You keep just jumping up tier after tier. And you're an amazing and beautiful person. I'm super stoked mm -hmm. to have gotten to know you. I love you. And thanks for letting me into your family. Thanks for treating me like you do, you guys, Chris and June. I look forward to a lot more of this. We feel the same way, JT. Thanks for coming into our lives and hearts and homes and for, for having me on your podcast. Absolutely, Kimmy. <laughs> All right, darling. Talk to you later. Talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to Drifting, presented by Yeti and hosted by me, JT Van Zandt. To listen to more episodes, visit yeti.com or search Drifting on iTunes. <laughs>